Okay. Good morning. Good to be back with you this morning. All right. Let us pray. O oh, blessed Lord Jesus, who for the redemption of the world walked the way of the cross and bore in your sinless self the sin of the many, grant that we, following in your footsteps, may obtain increase of your love and walk all the days of our life in your paths, who now lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Good. Okay, so this morning what I thought I'd do with you is take you on a little excursion through the uh, Gospel of Mark on a, on a topic that I think is one of the major motifs or themes of the Gospel of Mark, and that is following Jesus. Next Sunday is going to be sort of the sequel to that, and we'll take the end of the Gospel of Mark, focusing on the passion of Christ in Mark. Uh, Mark, Mark is uh, the first gospel written. It's by far the shortest of the four gospels, about half the length of the gospel of Luke. Okay. Does not have the Christmas story. Begins with Jesus as an adult, his baptism with John the Baptist, and, uh, and then goes right into uh, Jesus' adult ministry. I'm gonna start with an episode from probably about three quarters of the way through. A widow's offering. Jesus sat down opposite the offering box in the temple court, began observing the crowd putting money into it. Many who were wealthy put in much. Then a poor widow came who dropped in two lepta, worth about a penny. He called his disciples over and said to them, Amen, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the offering box than all the others. The others all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had on which to live. I, like you, have probably heard many sermons on this, including the ones I've preached. Okay. Um, why does the woman throw in her last two coins? She's going home to die. She's going home to die, precisely, precisely. This is about dying. This is not, uh, as I sometimes hear, a story about uh, she trusts that God will give her two more coins tomorrow if she dumps that in, you know. You give and God will replenish your pocket. There is a story kind of like that about another widow in the Old Testament, the widow of Zarephath in the time of Elijah, uh, Elijah raises her child from death, the oil doesn't run out, and that sort of thing. That, that's not what this story is about. The key line here is she put in all she owned, all she had on which to live, implying she's willing to die, which is really the whole theme of the Gospel of Mark. Now, the, in, interestingly enough, the, this uh, story is in Luke, and the context would emphasize in Luke that it's all about the contrast between she gives the greater percentage, uh, because Luke is always interested on the rich and poor contrasts, okay? 
Not Mark, not Mark. Matthew ignores this altogether, by the way. I could go on that in more detail, but it, and I think I know why. But uh, this is about faithful dying. She's ready to die, which is the whole theme here of what it means to follow Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we have Jesus' baptism, very short uh, little episode on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and then this is the very next thing that we get, Mark 1, 16. Jesus calling his first disciples, two sets of brothers, both are fishermen. And Mark emphasizes that the calling here is at the Sea of Galilee, just a little footnote on that. Mark is the only writer ever to call that body of water the Sea of Galilee. Okay, okay. It's, a, it's uh, six miles east to west, north to south, 12 miles. This is, you know, Lake Michigan is 85 miles across. Okay. So Mark was the first to coin that phrase. Anywho. Um, and notice the word that Jesus uses in both cases, follow me. Jesus said to them, follow me, I'll make you fish for men. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, 11 times in chapter 1 alone, Mark says immediately. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, John his brother, mending nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands and followed him. This is going to be a key theme, following Jesus. Interesting thing here, this is, this, is, uh, this is the first public incident in the ministry of Jesus. There's nothing in the text here to indicate that these four men had ever even met Jesus before. Jesus hasn't done anything else yet. They aren't reflecting on, oh, we heard rumors that he's healed this, that, and the other. No, this is the first right off the bat. And lo and behold, they do it. Why is that? They haven't heard him preach. This tells me, first off, that Jesus' word actually works. It does what it says. The very next episode, right after this in Mark, is Jesus going into a synagogue and casting out a demon, simply by saying, shut up and come out of him. And the demon does. In both cases, Jesus speaks and it happens. We'll shortly get a, an episode where Jesus speaks and it doesn't happen. It's possible to turn down Jesus' word. But there is that too. Mark chapter 2 has another call of another disciple. Uh, this one is uh, Matthew. Um, Mark calls him Levi. Again, Mark tells us that it happened at the sea. And I don't think that's accidental. I think Mark is helping the reader to understand where does this calling occur. It occurs at the water. It occurs at your baptism. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is always crossing that sea. He's always on the lake. And I can't help but hearing baptismal references in all of that. So that, that's kind of in the background. Call of Levi, also known as Matthew here, with the same words, following me. He got up and followed him. 
Later on, Jesus and his disciples are reclining for dinner in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus too, for there are many who followed him. So if you follow Jesus, you'll eat with him. There's a direct link to the next passage I've given you there about the Last Supper, and Mark is intent on telling us that they are reclining and dining. So baptismal following leads to dinner with Jesus. You could think of this thing with the Levi or Matthew here and his calling is this is their, uh, it's the uh, after, after the baptism supper kind of thing, which is what the Lord's Supper really is. So we have this following. But as I mentioned, there is the possibility of turning Jesus down. You can say no to Jesus we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him except by the Holy Spirit, but we can turn Jesus down. Here's a man who did. Matthew was a tax collector. Yeah. So we've got kind of a coin theme going on here today, huh? Render to Caesar, the coin. As he, Jesus starts on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds like a pretty important question to me. Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've carefully kept all these since I was a boy. I know what we Lutherans want to do with that. We want Jesus to say, oh, really? <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Neither does Paul when, when, he, when he lists his uh, credentials as a Pharisee and he said uh, his life under the law was blameless. He's not crossing his fingers behind his back. Jesus loved him. That's so stark in Mark's gospel, because I think if you were to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would probably say that Jesus comes off a bit stern in Mark as compared to the others, certainly as compared to Luke. So this is, whoa, Jesus loved him. That, that's unusual to come out of the gospel of Mark. You lack one thing, go sell all you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. He's saddened and left sorrowful. He was very rich. The invitation here by Jesus is to enter into Jesus' own life. He's done the commandments. That's one kind of life. The following Jesus' life is a very different kind of life. It's a new covenant life that, as we hear in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, goes way beyond the stuff of the old covenant, life under the law. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I say to you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Folks, that wasn't possible until Jesus came along. There's no commandment, love your enemies in the Old Testament. It's only possible because Jesus himself does it. On the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's a whole new kind of life that's actually possible now in the Holy Spirit, given in baptism, that was not possible 
under the old law. So he's, he's inviting him into the new covenant life, the life in Jesus himself. And he's got to decide between giving away to the poor and doing what the four did at the beginning of the story and Matthew the tax collector and drop everything. And is Jesus enough? I guess would be another way of putting it. Is Jesus enough? The disciples react at this. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it will be for those with wealth to enter God's reign. The disciples are stunned. Children, how hard it is to enter God's reign. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone with wealth to enter God's reign. They were even more astounded and said to one another, well, who can be saved then? Looking steadily at them, Jesus said, humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Peter started to speak. We left everything to follow you. What does Peter really mean by that? We left everything to follow you. He's expecting those results. He's expecting results. Look where we are in the story. What we're, okay. This is chapter 10, correct? I did print that correctly? Yes. Peter left everything to follow Jesus back in chapter 1. Now it's chapter 10. Okay. We're two-thirds of the way through. We left everything to follow you. What are the results? Nothing seems to have changed. They still have no jobs. They're still just walking around. Okay? They don't have any house. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and neither do they. Uh, hmm. what, the, the basic question is, what are we going to get out of it? As we'll see, the disciples never really do get it, okay? They never really understand what Jesus is up to until after his death and resurrection. Then the light bulb goes on. Notice Jesus' answer here. Jesus says, Amen, I tell you, there's no one who left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, like Peter did, who will not receive a hundred times as much in this age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. And I would interpret that as being the church. And then Mark's gospel adds, with persecutions. Huh. That's what you get for following Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So the note of persecution is thrown out here. It's not the first time that word was used. It was used back in chapter 4. Chapter 4 has uh, a number of parables. Mark doesn't have very many. They tend to be grouped in chapter 4. First of which is this, uh, the parable of the sower. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but uh, you know, uh, it's, an, it's an allegory of what, what happens when seed falls on different kinds of soil. It says of the seed that fell on rocky ground, right in the middle, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil wasn't deep. 
When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and withered because they had no root. More time is given on what happens to the seed thrown on rocky ground than on all the others. Later on, the disciples raise their hands and says, you know, please explain what this means. And Jesus says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Whenever they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But because they have no root, they endure only for a little while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Sound like anyone in the gospel you know? A guy whom Jesus nicknamed Peter which also means rock. So Peter indeed immediately received it with joy, left all to follow Jesus. But as we will hear next time, Peter is going to throw it all away on the night of Jesus' arrest, of course, and deny that he knows Jesus. Persecution comes. Are you really this man's disciple? And Peter will deny it three times with oaths and curses. The disciples uh, never really do understand, as I said. One of my favorite stories out of Mark is this episode of being in the boat with Jesus. They're always crossing that lake. On this particular occasion, bottom of page two, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. To a furious windstorm comes up. The waves began breaking over the boat so that it's nearly being swamped. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They wake him up and say to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Silence, shut up. Just like Jesus had said to the demon. Then the wind stopped. There was a great calm. He said to them, why are you such cowards? Do you still have no faith? We're in chapter four and they've been following him, but Jesus says they still have no faith. By now they should have some faith. In Matthew's gospel, it's put, where is your faith? It's kind of misplaced faith. You don't have it now. Mark emphasizes they don't have it at all. So my question to you is, what would faith have looked like so Jesus wouldn't have said to them, do you still have no faith? They would have let him sleep. They should have let him sleep. Okay. <laughs> so why is Jesus sleeping? That's one thing I Okay, that, that's their estimation is Jesus is sleeping and therefore he's not concerned. Don't you con aren't you concerned about what's going on? Is Jesus unconcerned? Well, the storm doesn't worry him. The okay, now we're getting there. Why doesn't the storm worry him? Well, because we know the end of the story. He's going to make everything calm. Jesus can do that stuff. What does Jesus ultimately know, however, about that storm? 
go to the other side through that storm. How does Jesus know that he's going to get through this storm and thus can sleep through it? Fine, thank you. It's not time to die. Exactly. It's not time to die. Okay. The death that Jesus will die is the, is the death that the Father has in store for him, and that's death by crucifixion. It's by torture. It's the kind of death where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. That's the kind of death that's ahead. Therefore, Jesus, Jesus can sleep through the storm. So, back to my original question, though, what would faith have looked like? Peter standing Yes, that's a, that's a different story, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's a different story. There, there are too many water stories. I know. We, yeah, just, yeah. This one doesn't have the, the walking on the water thing. They would lay down and go to sleep, too. Precisely. Thank you very much. Okay. She said that they would lay down and go to sleep, too. Okay. If the teacher is taking a nap, it's time for the kids, you know, to leave their books aside and take a nap, too. Okay. So, yeah. Jesus has a different kind of death in store for them than dying on that lake. They will die a death that glorifies God by giving their lives as his followers, his disciples. Martyrdom will be the kind of death they are going to die. So that, that faith, do as Jesus does kind of thing. They still obviously don't understand. They still don't have faith. Same chapter, Mark 4. One of the other parables is the parable of the mustard seed. With what can we compare the reign of God? Or with what parable shall we explain it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up to become larger than all the garden plants and forms branches so big that birds can nest in its shade. That phrase, reign of God, sometimes translated as kingdom of God. Um, Matthew's Gospel says the reign of heaven or kingdom of heaven. It's not about a place. We might simply rephrase that or paraphrase it as, as a, how God operates in Jesus. What God does in Jesus, what God's doing in Jesus is like a mustard seed planted in ground. So, in order for the seed to go from, have you ever seen a mustard seed? I don't know, maybe some of the LWML people have, I don't know. Uh, it's about the size of a poppy seed, thereabouts, white. For it to go from that, and in my class I always pass one around, that invariably never gets around to the room back to me. Okay. Okay. How does it go from that to this shrub that's big enough for birds to make nests in it. You've got to have strong, in order to get the strong roots, what do you have to have? Who are the botanists here? You need water, you need sunshine, a little fertilizer will help. And time, you need time. So this parable really is saying right, right now, everything I'm doing looks is insignificant Where'd it go? As a mustard seed. You're not going to understand it. There's nothing about the mustard seed that looking at it, you say, ah, that's going to be a large bush or tree. You've got to give it time, Jesus is teaching them here. And uh, 
There's been some opposition to Jesus already in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 3, we've got the mention of the first plot to kill Jesus already in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees and Herodians are plotting to kill Jesus. Doesn't, this does not look like Jesus is the savior of the world. If the religious experts are saying he must go. Uh, so got to wait it out, got to wait it out. Then when we get halfway through the gospel, exactly halfway through Mark's gospel, uh, we get a healing of a blind man in chapter eight. That's going to be followed by three passion predictions. Three times Jesus takes his disciples aside and tells, tells them, we're on the way to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be arrested and crucified. We get one of those in chapter 8, we get one in chapter 9, we get one in chapter 10. Prior to that, we've got the healing of this blind man. This story is only in the Gospel of Mark. And maybe you can understand why the others didn't want to touch it. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he led him outside the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Looking up, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then he laid his hands on again. He looked and now he saw everything clearly. His sight was restored. Then Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. It's the only miracle that doesn't take the first time. Matthew omits this. Huh, this is odd, this is odd. As we'll see, the three passion predictions are concluded with another blind man healing story. So these are two bookends to the passion predictions. Best I can make out of this is what Mark is saying is, okay, maybe there's some folks that need a redo. Maybe redo isn't the best word. Need to be continually worked on in order to see clearly. This is kind of where the disciples are. They're not seeing clearly. Everything looks like trees walking. They're not seeing the ministry of Jesus for what it really is, in spite of the fact that they've left everything to follow him. So we'll come back to the blind man thing. Uh, first passion prediction in Mark 8. With each of these passion predictions, the disciples distance themselves from Jesus ever further. So, they go to Caesarea Philippi, which is as far as you can go north in Israel and still be in Israel. On the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say, you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, one of the prophets. Then the famous question, who do you say that I am? And Peter's famous reply, you are the Christ. He warned them to tell no one about him. Famous motif in Mark, the Mark in secret. And that's only in Mark. Don't tell anybody. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise. He said this with complete confidence. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter is clueless as to, you know, how all of this information really fits with Jesus, Messiah. 
Jesus famously rebukes Peter, calling him Satan. And the conclusion is, Jesus called his disciples and declared, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now that follow me is exactly what the disciples heard back in chapter 1. Here we have the, the nuance, following Jesus doesn't simply mean walking around with Jesus, it means dying with Jesus. Take up the cross. To us, we could just as well say, take up the electric chair, take up the gas chamber. That's what this is. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. One chapter later, exactly one chapter later, Jesus does it again. More secrecy. He doesn't want anyone to know where he's heading. He's teaching his disciples the Son of Man is betray being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. We're just a little halfway through the gospel and the hands are going down. The disciples aren't being students anymore. They're afraid to ask Jesus. Jesus is no longer their teacher. They don't know what else to do, still keep on walking around with them. And they're, they don't understand. Then, exactly one chapter later, the third passion prediction. They were on their way, going up to Jerusalem with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed, though the others who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began telling them that he was going, what was going to happen to him. Know this, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him severely and kill him. But after three days he will rise. Yeah, silence. No questions asked. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, do come to Jesus and say to him, Teacher, we'd like you to do for us what about what we're to ask. What do you want me to do for you? Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup which I am drinking and be baptized with the baptism with which I was baptized? All of a sudden, the word baptism is thrown in there. Jesus had a baptism back in chapter 1. Okay? In essence, the following of the two Zebedee boys that began in chapter 1 was actually their baptism, too, at the sea. Hmm. Can you drink the cup that I am drinking? They, they will answer, yeah, we, we can do that. But of course, that, that language drink the cup which I'm drinking will come up again in Gethsemane, right? Remove this cup from me, Jesus will say. But Jesus takes it, thy will be done. The, the two Zebedee sons are totally oblivious to the purpose for which they're going to 
Jerusalem, even though, even though, as you see here, Jesus has outlined it with much more detail about everything that's going to happen to him. They don't get it. They don't get it. Uh, they want to be his VP and Secretary of State. There will, too, be two who get that role in Mark's Gospel. It's the one on either side of Jesus at the crucifixion, if you want to go that route. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 they're, they're not getting it, okay? Following Jesus means dying with Jesus. Baptism means putting you on the course to death with Christ. Yes? Yeah, okay, so, uh, well, first, Jesus is in the lead, emphasizing, you know, he wants to go there. This is, you know, he has a destination in mind. They're amazed that they're going. They're amazed that, well, I don't think they're amazed that they're going to Jerusalem, but that Jesus is so intent to get there. It's not as if they've never been to Jerusalem. And the, opposi and the opposition always has come from Jerusalem. Yeah, uh, Pharisees from Jerusalem. It's, all, it's, always the, it's always the Jerusalem group. Yeah. Then we're almost in Jerusalem. End of chapter 10. The very next episode, as we open chapter 11, is the Palm Sunday event. Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding the donkey, to all the pomp and circumstance. So this is what happens after that third passion prediction and Mark's description of Jesus entering Jerusalem to all the Hosannas. They come to Jericho. So Jericho, I think, is about 20 miles maybe from Jerusalem, if that. It's the last leg of the trip. There's no more towns to visit between Jericho and Jerusalem. They come to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd are leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was in the crowd, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to shut up. But he cried out even more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man, said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling you. He threw off his shammah, jumped to his feet, came to Jesus. Then Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see again and followed him on the way. So what's happening here? We've got this blind beggar, the guy who lives under the bridge, he hears that he has heard things about Jesus, certainly, and he wants Jesus to heal him, and thus his cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus does heal him. Before Jesus heals him, however, what does he do? The blind man threw off his shammah. I gave you that little picture there. That's that cloth wrapped around him on top. 
It's simply just a big cloth. It's not a, it's not a piece of clothing you put on, it's something you wrap around you. It's still used all over the place in East Africa. What is that to this man? I think that, that little detail in, in Mark here, I think, is important. So the shama, this thing, is his blanket at night, keeps him warm. It's also what he uses to catch anything the folks are giving him. Alms, whatever, some fruit. It's his livelihood. It's the only thing he's got. So I would submit that he is doing exactly what the four disciples and Levi did at the beginning of the story. They left everything to get to Jesus. He now can see, and it doesn't, have, it doesn't take two tries on Jesus' part here. So this is sort of the other book end of that blind man healing. This is what discipleship actually looks like because this guy is following him on the way, the way where? To Jerusalem. Thus following, on, and the followers of the way is the first name for Christians. So this is an example of, a, of what discipleship really is. To follow Jesus all the way and the, we, the reader, have already been told why Jesus is going there. There's only one reason, to die. Now, interestingly enough, speaking of death, uh, there are two uh, deaths spoken of at quite some length in the Gospel of Mark. One, obviously, is Jesus. The other is that of John the Baptist. What is so striking about this in the Gospel of Mark is, Mark's Gospel is a very fast-paced read. Short little episodes, little, little chunks. Ding, 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 ding. Mark, as I said before, punctuates it with the word immediately. Always getting on to something else. <laughs> there are two times, however, where Mark just slows it way down. The first is the account of the death of John the Baptist, and the second is the passion of Jesus. Everything else is fast-paced. Matthew's Gospel has the story of the beheading and burial of John the Baptist as well, but it's actually shorter in Matthew's Gospel than in Mark. This is the longest narrative in Mark outside of the passion of Jesus. And I've only given you half the account here. I've only given you the end of the story where King Herod has this birthday party, of course, and uh, his wife Herodias has hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist had been telling the folks that Herod shouldn't have married her because she was the wife of Herod's brother Philip who divorced her. That's against Torah, against the law. John the Baptist ends up getting thrown in prison and then has this party and Herodias's daughter dances for them. You gotta kinda read between the lines what kind of a party this was with only men in the room and this girl dancing. The, she, and Herod says, you know, ask anything you want up to half my kingdom and she trots out to her mother, what should I ask for? And she replies, the head of John the Baptist. And the king can't go back on his word because having made a vow, you must keep your vow. 
The king was deeply distressed, but because of the oaths he had made in front of his guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. But that's not the end of the story. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. We get this added line about the burial of John the Baptist by his disciples. Now, for someone to bury a family member is expected. It's what family members do, no matter what happened to the person. So I would submit that these disciples here are really sticking their own necks out. They're letting all the world and the king and his wife see who they are. In other words, they're willing to face John's fate by offering him burial. The other death, of course, in Mark's gospel is that of Jesus. Notice how Mark describes Jesus' burial. Joseph of Arimathea, a distinguished member of the council who was himself waiting expectantly for God's reign, courageously went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's a courageous deed because Joseph of Arimathea is associating himself here with Jesus. He's, he's doing what the other disciples didn't do in the Garden of Gethsemane. They all ran away. Okay. He's putting himself out there, okay? linking himself with Jesus. He might die as well. He might be arrested. Now, Mark's gospel was written in the environs of Rome in the aftermath of the great fire in 64 AD, which destroyed four districts of Rome. The fire hit 10 out of the 14, a million people are homeless, and the Emperor Nero puts the blame for it all on Christians to save his own political hide. Uh, among those executed in the fall of 64 were the apostles Peter and Paul. Peter died how? Crucifixion upside down. Paul was executed by beheading. Hmm. So interestingly enough, in the Gospel of Mark, there's one execution by crucifixion and one by beheading. The, just like the two apostles that suffered martyrdom in Rome. The first hearers of Mark's Gospel in the environs of Rome would not have missed the connection. Would not have missed the connection. Um, discipleship is all about going to the death with Jesus, being willing to die. I'll close with this thought by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German Lutheran pastor and theologian executed by the Nazis for his plot in the uh, unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. 
The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which, of course, is why you dip your finger in the water downstairs and make the sign of the cross on your head just as it was done at your baptism. We receive the blessings of Christ's death for us, but at the same time, we're given the cross too to follow wherever it is that he leads, okay? no matter what. Okay. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.